Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns and Acadians of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For over 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. Last fall, I had the opportunity to travel to L'Acadie, the Acadians' homeland, in the Canadian Maritime Provinces to interview the last living French-speaking Acadian war veterans. The stories of the Acadians and Cajuns are intertwined and remarkably similar. These are our Acadian cousins from up north, and this is their World War II story. If you follow the podcast and you heard about the historic Cajun-Acadian World War II commemoration held at the National World War II Museum in April of 2022. I had the honor of working with the great people at the museum and with the Canadian Consul General's Office, who orchestrated and sponsored this event. We honored four French-speaking World War II veterans, including Alphonse Vatour, an Acadian from New Brunswick who came ashore at Juneau Beach on D-Day with the famed North Shore Regiment. You can catch the highlights from the event in Episode 7 and 8 of this podcast series, and if you want to see the hour-long video of the full program, click the link to YouTube in the description box. The event was such a success that the Canadian consulate offered to send me on a special assignment to find and interview the last living French-speaking Acadian veterans of World War II, like this outspoken fella, Camille LeBlanc. Language was there, it made its way, you know, not only in peacetime, but in wartime where it was so important to have this unit gel together and come and recognize together because little Acadian French-speaking boys were able to go in the same uniform. Look out, man. Look out. In this special episode, you will hear stories from the veterans themselves, from their family members, and from local experts. According to Ron Cormier, who wrote the book on the Acadians in World War II, approximately 24,000 Acadians of military age served in the armed forces as volunteers. Perhaps as many as 10,000 saw combat overseas. Most of them fought in Italy, France, Belgium, and Holland. Many did not speak good English when they joined, but they learned quickly. The Acadians were dispersed throughout nearly every branch of the Canadian Armed Forces, so learning English in the military was an imperative. Once overseas, however, their French language became valuable in communicating with locals, particularly when they came ashore in Normandy. Ironically, in England and France, many Acadians were transferred into Quebec units to assist with English translation among the Anglos and the Quebec Francophones who could not communicate otherwise. As with the Cajuns, the military found ways to utilize the Acadians' bilingual skills, even though back home they were often ridiculed for their country dialect and broken English. These Acadians, like their Cajuns, grew up poor, uneducated, and reared in farming and fishing communities. They were products of the Great Depression, so joining the military was an economic choice for most. The military offered them a small paycheck and an opportunity for a better life after the war. They went in as Acadians and came out as Canadians, but they still honor their heritage. The pride in being an Acadian reached a crescendo in the 1960s following the cultural movement centered around French language preservation and recognition. 
keeping that language and culture intact remains a constant battle for this proud Francophone group. We'll start the program off with Charlie Muse, the last living Acadian World War II veteran from the Yarmouth region in southwestern Nova Scotia. As of the fall 2022, Charlie was 101 years old. He and his wife had just celebrated their 80th year of marriage, and they spend their whole lives in the village of Tuscan. Charlie joined the Princess Louise Fusiliers in 1941 and served in Italy, France, and Holland. My real name, Charles Abram Muse. I was born in a little village called Hubbard's Point in Yarmouth County. Mono is Charles Muse. In the TV village, the Point de Hubbard, c'est appelé. J'étais au français, j'étais élevé en français, and uh, I can speak uh, French, and I speak English not too bad. The school's all French. We had what they call a French grammar, a French reader. No. But you learned English also. Some of the older people, I know, I can't name them, but there was the old people that, that had a hard time with English. But uh, all the young people, I mean, at, at my time, were pretty well could get by in English. They were maybe not actually the, the best, uh, but they could, they could make them, themselves understood. And I tell you what, I had been to the valley picking apples when I was from 16, 17 years old. From then on, I worked on farms with, with my brother, uh, English people, mm. and uh, uh, it makes me kind of laugh. The two of us rode on a boat with the same bicycle. I walked on this on the road on the on the crossbar, and he was I was only then but sixteen or maybe a little younger. I was getting twenty five cents an hour, and my brother was getting forty cents, and he said to me, "As soon as you can follow your brother, I'll give you the same wages." And that's what that's what we were working for. That's what we got. That was that right after the depression. So just before Christmas, I, I got a call, another call, a letter from Halifax, if I was still interested to join the forces. Naturally, I was. I said, yes, I was. And so I was called in March. And when the train left the station, there was a station right here. It's all mm. tore down. By the time we landed to Halifax, we were 38. That, that picked up along the way. It was 8 o'clock at night. They, they could all speak enough English to, you know, to get by. Oh, yes, they, they learned. Some of them were like I was, a little rusty on, uh, in their English, but we, we, we got by. I joined with the Princess Louise Fusiliers. I was with them uh, for three years. Just before going to Italy, I was transferred to the Irish Regiment of Canada from Ontario, units from Ontario. Uh, the first division had invaded had invaded Sicily. Yeah. But we like we were in there. That was the first div. I was with the fifth. So they landed in the place called Reggio. And uh, shortly after we were told we were all all together, most of the Canadians and Montgomery stood on a jeep, on the hood of a jeep, and 
this is was very this was supposed to be top secret that they were hauling out all the Canadians from Italy. Now I don't know how good the, the Canadians were, but do you know the Germans were scarce at the, the Canadians? That they were, that's true. For some reason, I don't know, they couldn't have been any better than the other troops, but they just, for some reason. Anyway, that, but, the, but the, at that time, uh, Mussolini, they had so many underground people, but Mussolini, he wasn't very, very <laughs> they didn't like him. And the, uh, the, and the, uh, the Italian did want to fight. They did want to fight, which is, and as the underground was all causing all kinds of trouble for the Germans. So we didn't have it hard to start with. And then we just got started, and the fall came, November, and the Germans couldn't advance, we couldn't advance, they, they couldn't haul heavy artillery, they couldn't haul trucks, they couldn't, you know, motorcycles, nothing. To, and, and what we stayed all winter is what they called a static line, you know what I mean by that. And that was dangerous, the static line, because we did night patrols, no man's land, and so did the Germans. And uh, we had to work like at night patrols until in the spring when everything cleared up and we could move, and uh, then the, the battle really started, it really got serious. The unit I was in was for support group with the three inch motors. So they also, a lot of us had to be shifted here and there. They only kept what they, what they, what they needed. My friend Simon Mallet was from up the line of the French shore. My section, from the time we got done from there, there was the only, he was, we were the only two left in the section. Because we had had so many reinforcements, so many got killed, so many got wounded, Somebody went to the hospital, we kept getting reinforcements. We had all of Nova Scotia, we had Cape Bretoners, we had P Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, yeah, mm. whatever. Uh, that's pretty well what, what, what was involved in our unit. A lot, a lot were from, from like the Valley Way. People I knew quite a few from the valley. I knew some from, I uh, had friends from down this end. Charlie Muse's unit pulled out of Italy in the fall of 1944 and arrived in France a few months after the Battle of Normandy. He spent the next year in France and Holland, where his French came in handy with the locals. For a time, he was assigned to transport a recreational unit that provided music and entertainment to the troops in rear echelon areas. So I was transferred to this. Uh, to deal with this officer at this camp and he, he transferred me to his name, to, to this unit, which was the 84th Recreational Unit. That's where I stayed here for six months. This was only a, a group of, 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 of officers. They had four, we had four lakes, and like I told you, four clubs. And all I did, I hauled a band all over Italy. I had a truck and I was hauling the band. When they were practicing, we were in a great big tent. When they were practicing, I, would, I could sing a little. And I didn't do that for entertainment, but I sang, you know, when they were playing, come on, Charlie, sing us a song, you know. Dans les 
Garnis de fleurs, un bon rosier d'amour. Oh, they think that the French, the French, they, think, they thought a lot of the Canadians. Oh, God Almighty, yes, they did. But I, they, I, but I think that Holland was the most appreciative, you know, all told, because they were the last one, they were starving. They were eating tulip bulbs. And I was there when, the, when, the, when they had permission to come in with, with uh, Allies' planes to drop food. To the, uh, to the, uh, to, to, to the people, mm -hmm. in, in yeah. it dropped food. Yeah, mm -hmm. my God, they was. They, I've seen people there. They, they were they starved. A lot mm -hmm. of them starved. That when if if you'd been through a place where the Germans had been, it's hard to explain what you what you were going to find. In Holland, I stayed there. We arrived there in the fall, and I I came back. I stayed a year over there. So they say you're one of the last Acadian World War II veterans from this area. Yes, I'm the last one. Yeah, I'm the last one. Yeah, we consider ourselves Acadians. We are Acadians. In the neighboring municipality of Argyle, I had the chance to visit the local archives. I came across a memoir written by another local Acadian veteran, Basile LeBlanc. He joined the Canadian Grenadier Guards and fought at the Battle of Normandy. Like other Francophones, he got along well with the French locals and made friends. He met a French lady in Normandy and, as he said, in my imperfect French, asked if he could trade canned goods for some fresh eggs. He went back a second night for dinner and met the priest for a seven-course meal, including wine. He wrote, We had never seen the likes, even in better times. After dinner, the locals brought out a bottle of cognac and said that the bottle had been buried for four years so the Germans couldn't find it. This was a thank you as a token for their liberation. He wrote, For a brief moment, life had seemed sane again and had gained a degree of normalcy. Once in Belgium, Basile actually served as a translator for members of a small Belgian resistance group. He wrote in his memoir about meeting the underground fighters in a dimly lit room to give instructions on the use of Canadian automatic weapons. He wrote, There I was. A 19-year-old kid with fuzz for a beard among those veterans of guerrilla warfare. They were smoking and the room was full of tobacco smoke, the room barely lit, probably by candles, and the guys all talking in French. I felt like a character in a clandestine movie about spies. From Argyle, I ventured south to the fishing community of Wedgeport, where I interviewed the families of two deceased Cadian World War II veterans, Gerald Portier and Harold Leblanc. The LeBlanc family recalled intimate details of Harold's wartime experience through numerous stories that he shared over the years and from dozens of letters that he wrote home during the war. The family also recently uncovered an old interview with him from a local radio station in which Harold described his wartime experience as a French-speaking Acadian in France. I'm Kevin Harold LeBlanc. The interview was done on my dad, John Harold LeBlanc. And I think it was done in year 2000. And it was done by Sifa radio station up the line, Parol. He was 20 years old when he enlisted to go to in the army. First of all, they lived in a village that was not rich. They didn't make money. And even going in the army was a way of making money, in a sense. 
So he enlisted in 1942, and he was 20 years old. Once in England, Harold, like Gerald Portier and other Acadians, were transferred to Quebec units because they were bilingual and could translate to English for the Francophone Quebecs. In many ways, the Acadians became interpreters for their Quebec and English comrades, as local historian Cyril LeBlanc explains. They were changed in England. It's when he went to England that he was moved to Maisonneuve. And same thing with the others, with Gerald Portier. It was in England that he was changed. And his father says in one of the letters that he met other Acadians from this area that were in French units. There were other French, there were other Quebec uh, uh, unit, uh, regiments from Quebec. And uh, he says, I met a lot of them, a lot of my friends that are members of French regiments or uh, Quebec regiments. So that was a common thing to do. When in England, uh, recognizing that the lot of the Quebecois were unilingual French, no understanding of English. No. So it was decided, I think, in England that uh, because they didn't speak English, that they needed somebody to help them to translate, to translate, to help them along in in England, and then with the English regiments and that. So I doubt whether there's a policy, but it was something that was adapted on the fly. Like even my father, locally, as a young man, would speak our Acadian French here. Probably his English was not the greatest when he first went in the army. And as the letters that we've read in Downey too, the first letters are very hard to read because of his writing and spelling. But the, la the last letters are pretty good because they were being taught in English a lot. And so he'll probably learn more English at war than he done at home. So he learned his English, uh, you know, from, from the war. But he told us or me or whatever many times uh, as being in a Quebec regiment they learn a lot of the Quebec French by being with Quebec people. And after a while, they probably lost their Wedgeport lingo. But he told us many times that uh, he had to translate for people, uh, especially he had been to the hospital, and he had to translate from patient to doctor or from doctor to patient because they couldn't understand each other. If you're English, you couldn't speak to a, a, a doctor from Paris or if vice versa, both ways. So he told us many times that uh, he had to translate for people. And one thing also he told us uh, in the war, he, after a while, they, he wanted to be, they wanted to promote him sergeant, and he did not want to, because sergeants were being killed. Hmm. They'd send them out with 10, 12 men, and they never come back. They were leading, yeah. And uh, he took the job of what they call company runner, and when the reason that they did 
podium company runner is because he could speak two languages. In the latter part of the war, he was a company runner. And he told us, I don't know if I ever told you that, Donnie, but he told us that that's the reason that he put him, because he could at least speak two languages. They could talk quite well to people from France. Uh, the people from France could not understand the Quebec people, or vice versa. So they had a better way of communicating mm -hmm. with them than the Quebecers type thing. We were so isolated in this area that we kept the old French, the French. So the standardizing of French wasn't taught in the schools. And um, so some of the old words we, we just kept within the, the, the people, like the we count in, 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 in Acadian French is septat instead of soixante dix in standard French, and that's 70. And we still count that way. I mean, we kept that for 300 years. And there are quite a few other expressions in that. The problem now is that a lot of English uh, words are mixed into, into our French. But at that time, in Harold's time, it was a pure French. Like I remember my grandparents. Yes. I wouldn't hear any English words from them, or very, very seldom. They were all speaking always totally in French. And so Harold was the same way. And then when we, they spoke to French people from France, the French people from France knew a lot of these old words we were still using, even if they didn't speak the words. But in some areas, even in, in, uh, in, uh, in other parts of Europe, they still count the old way. But, uh, but they, they, so, so we kept the old French. And, and the French people that I'm saying, they, they understood us because they knew from their parents. I've heard interviews at, at CIFA, the local radio station, of French people from the Normandy, Bretagne area, and they say, oh, those words are the expression that was my father, my grandmother spoke that way. And even in one case, one says, uh, uh, the, interview, the, the, France, the man from France says that when the grandparents Wanted, didn't want the, the children to understand what they were saying, they would speak in the old Acadian way. <laughs> Sound familiar? I've interviewed countless veterans and their wives from the World War II generation who said the exact same thing, regrettably. The Yarmouth region in Acadia is located in a beautiful historic seaside community, best known for its seafood industry and lobster fleet. When the Acadians returned to this area following the expulsion, and the taking of their land, many of them turned to fishing as a means for survival. Generations later, Acadian fishermen and boat builders like the LeBans pioneered the modern commercial lobster industry off the coast of southwestern Nova Scotia. A.F. Terrio, that's spelled T-H-E-R-I-A-U-L-T, the largest shipbuilder on the coast in the neighboring region of Clare, is a third-generation lobster boat builder. I took a tour of the yard with the grandson of the founder who now runs the company. It reminded me of the shipyards in Homa and Lockport with all the similarities in shipbuilding culture and Acadian Cajun surnames. As one drives along the scenic French coast with a gorgeous view of the Bay of Fundy, homes and businesses dawn with Acadian flags. This is the Acadian heartland, 
and it will be the host site for the Congress Mondial Acadienne in August 2024. Five hours away in New Brunswick, I had made arrangements to interview three Acadian World War II veterans at the Veterans Center in Moncton. 99-year-old Acadian veteran Roger Babineau joined the Canadian Air Force at the start of the war. He was raised in the French-speaking community of Shadiac River in eastern New Brunswick. He did not learn to speak English until he joined the service. He lived and worked in France for four years after the war as a service member working at an Air Force base for NATO. His ability to speak French no doubt played a key role in this unique opportunity to serve his country and its francophone allies abroad. Mon nom est Roger Joseph Paul Babineau. J'ai vécu dans la guerre 1941 pour 20 ans dans l'aviation, dans le corps d'aviation. I joined the service in 1941, age 18. That's when I left the nest. My father's father came from France. And while I was in France, I found out they came from Bordeaux, right outside of Bordeaux, the Babineau, the mm. first Babineau. Uh, but during the war, we were not treated the same. If it was any dirty job, I mean, I was one of them that was three, four of us. He was always picking on us, but that's, that's normal, I guess. NATO was the force after the war that took over Europe, remember? I was part of NATO. So I served then 15 years in Italy. We were sent all over the place. I lived in the French for four years. And I was in the French uh, the city of Metz, M-E-T-Z. My boss didn't speak a word of French. So, you know, when he wanted something, I had to translate mm -hmm. to him. But at the end, they got another officer that spoke both languages. All the time I was in French, I was in charge of maintenance. It was a it was a big chateau, but I mean, we had a lot of radar sites all over the place, and there was a, a lot of buildings to look after. Some uh, living quarters for the, the houses, and I was in charge of, of the crew. Ron Cormier, a New Brunswick author, has documented the stories of the Acadians in wartime. He conducted dozens of interviews with veterans from the area and recounted their stories of hardships and contributions to the liberation of Europe. My name is Ronald Cormier. I wrote books on Acadians who fought in the first, in the Second World War, and also the history of Acadians, uh, their service during World War II. Uh, how many served? Uh, what units they served with? Uh, what difficulties they faced, etc. Because contrary to most of their fellow New Brunswickers, uh, Acadians had to learn English to serve their country, which was different. They had most of them at the time in early 1940s, uh, 1939-1940, who volunteered, they were all volunteers, very few of them could speak English, maybe a quarter could speak English, the rest did not know a word of English, said yes or no. I figure about yeah, five to six hundred landed in Normandy, most with the North Shore Regiment, which was, mm -hmm. I'd say about 250 to 300. Uh, a lot with the North Nova Scotia Highlanders, uh, some with the Chaudière Regiments, Regiment from Quebec, and uh, there were Acadians in all regiments because I have found uh, dead in all regiments of the Canadian Army. And everything was done in English, those regiments. 
even though they, in the uh, North Shore Regiment, about a third of the soldiers were Acadians. So they were they came in handy when Dili arrived, because as soon as they landed in France, they could talk with the people. They had a similar accent to the people living in Normandy, and so they, you know they tell them, uh, oh. No, don't go there, there are mines, don't go there, there are Germans, or the Germans are hidden in the woods there, there's an artillery. People around those villages knew where the Germans were. So the, the, the king's soldiers would go to their officers or their uh, platoon commanders or whoever it was and tell them, okay, the Germans are there. We know that because they told us they were there. So they came very handy. Uh, understanding something uh, sort of happened to the American forces landed, landed in France, and uh, there they were. I think they were mostly they were assigned. Here they were not assigned; it was just natural. Mm -hmm. And there were Acadians in, I can say, every regiment that landed on D-Day. Acadians served like uh, everyone else, mm -hmm. and and it wasn't for a patriotic reason for most of them. Most of them, they, they were, at least they admitted it, unlike other people. Oh, we did it for king and country. No, they didn't, they didn't do it for king and country. They didn't know anything, no, owe anything to England, and they didn't know, no, owe anything to France. They had been conquered by the British and abandoned by the French. So they didn't know, owe anyone anything. Uh, both uh, joined to get a decent salary. Yeah. That's it was for particularly for economic reasons that they joined. When the Acadians returned home from the war, there were few parades to welcome them. Many felt that their sacrifices were unappreciated. Most had a hard time finding work after the war, but they persisted and fought for equal economic opportunities. Many Acadians became civic leaders. It took many years before their sacrifices during the war were recognized. In the 1960s, memorials began to be built to honor them in Acadian areas like Mimram Cook and Cap Pelé. The Acadians, like the Cajuns, experienced a resurgence in ethnic pride after the war. In the 1960s, an Acadian cultural movement swept through the region of L'Acadie and ultimately led to the creation of an official dual-language system through the Language Acts of 1969 in New Brunswick. Camille Leblanc, an Acadian World War II veteran who served in the Canadian Navy on smaller corvette ships, shared his words of wisdom about this historic transformation of the Acadian culture in the post-war era and what it means for the Francophone world today. Oui, bonjour. Mon nom est Camille Leblanc. Joseph Camille Hector Leblanc. Je suis né d'une famille acadienne Ici au Nouveau-Brunswick, j'ai participé à plusieurs groupes de diverses acadiennes et aussi pour la promotion de l'éducation des Acadiens au Nouveau-Brunswick. Joseph Camille Hector Leblanc. I was born in Moncton, New Brunswick. And uh, right now I'm 101 years old. My, like, my father was born 
in Mermaram Cook. That's where the life of French Acadian started, because Mermaram Cook was a strong stronghold of, of the Acadian people. And uh, of course, the, 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 the Acadian uh, history of the dispersion of the Acadians, you know. So anyway, there was the, the, the stronghold of Naranko. And of course, uh, all these other little villages too, you know. And uh, you know, going up as far as Camelton, New Brunswick, you know, and towards St. John, New Brunswick, you know. So it, there was twice of, of, you know, and each one of those those uh, uh, groups around the province, there was active activity, you know, towards the, the uh, towards the idea of making Acadian a place for home, a place that would progress, you know, a place where we could tell people, this is, is our land, you know, let's look at it. And, of course, you know, it, it, uh, we're proud of it. We're proud of any noise we might have made. And we're also, I might say, it, it makes us feel pretty good to know that here we have uh, uh, an Acadian from way down south to come and want to know about our history, our story. Yes, I was attached to uh, to the Corvette, an old Corvette, and and there many uh, francophone people were occupied their job in the on on the Corvettes. Uh, the language, of course, we mix well with the English from uh, from England. Uh, we had a, a very good uh, standing, a very good uh, share with them, of course, uh, and uh, the uh, it was it was it, it was very very significant here how quickly one group of English-speaking uh, English-speaking you know, people of, of, of the war with, along with with the English you know from 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 across the sea all mixed well together they came to to understand what it was the two languages together working in a ship that was going out to settle a joint uh, issue yes it, you know again language was there it made its way you know not only in peacetime but 
in wartime where it was so important to have this unit gel together and come and recognize together because little Acadian French-speaking boys were able to go in the same uniform. Look out, man. Look out. How important the French language was, I think it was proven that it was quite, quite, quite an essential part of, of, of a French culture. We, we took advantage of the opportunity to express ourselves in, in, in French and to, to uh, ask, you know, the, uh, the English community to understand, you know, why we're doing this, it, it, you know, avoid any malice or anything like that, but it was an understanding that we respected the English-speaking people and their language, don't forget, oh yes, uh, you know, because there was an advantage, there was an advantage for us as well, you know, and uh, the English-speaking uh, understood that, mm -hmm. they understood that. We had our hardships, you know, the question of French, English, uh, the language to be able to work in in French was a, was a, a, a task, a really tough uh, agenda. But you know, uh, we knew that the French Acadian needed to to uh, expand their knowledge of the French and their knowledge of the English language. So, uh, progress was made. The Francophone community was able to make friends with our English-speaking uh, friends, you know. Today, when you see signs, you know, l'Acadie or le Français, parmi, when you see these signs floating around, Let's be careful. It's all for progress. It is not for a, a hate program mm -hmm. or this. It is for progress. And that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. I do have had, uh, you know, uh, signs sometimes to get into <laughs> a political. As a matter of fact, I did work several times uh, on a on a campaign mm -hmm. for people who assented to political aspirations. We've had names, mm -hmm. Acadian, uh, his nickname T. Louis, Little Louis in English, Robbie Show. You know, he was a fireball. Uh -huh. And he was a punch. Tiwi Robichaud, Premier of New Brunswick. Yes, he's the one, you might say, started the movement. Well, it came to re he, uh, he, he came to realize that 
to get a little ahead a little faster and with a little more punch we would need a university that could flood the the Acadian uh, you know culture throughout and don't forget we the the Acadian people in this province also know and value the uh, circumference of, of development that you're after, mm -hmm. that you're going after. And, and I, I am sure that the Acadian roots everywhere will assist the, the Francophone, you know, down south. What an inspirational message from an elder ambassador of the Acadians. They are the last of their generation, and we would all do well to follow their guidance. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. Special thanks to the Canadian Consul General's Office, and especially to Noella Demain for giving me the opportunity of a lifetime to visit my Acadian homeland and to document the stories of these Acadians of World War II. I'd also like to thank the Muse and LeBlanc families, Cyril LeBlanc, Ron Cormier, Samuel Sandon, Phil Cassidy, and the folks at the Moncton Veterans Center, and to my good friend Warren Perrin, and to Brenda and Ray Tronhoff of LouisianaCadie.org for introducing me to Acadia at the 2019 Congress Mondial Acadian Festival. This has truly been a collaborative effort. Hope to see you all at the next Congress 2024. The Frenchie Podcast Music is provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. <laughs>